Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 122, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. How do you teach students about impeachment during politically risky times? And ACT is changing how students will retake their exam. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we're talking about distant reading, how you can teach students to read through large amounts of data using computers. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by the most optimistic principal I know, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You're too kind. You're too kind. You know, I'm always trying to find, I don't know if you noticed, I'm always trying to introduce you to something different. Yeah, like, yeah I, I you see know, that. That's what I'm going for. I don't know if the listeners caught on. Hey, but I like but that, are, though, because now you, you, you're really, for this very moment, I want to make sure that I'm optimistic the rest of the day and start my day off right tomorrow. Have you ever served on a jury? I have not. Have you been called? I have received notices. Yeah. Um, that, but I have been. Do you want to, do you, maybe you should, don't need to say anything further. <laughs> we'll just stop there. As your it, attorney, I advise you not to go any further. <laughs> I have not been called. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I actually got a notice and I'm headed to jury duty um, next week. So I'm hoping I don't get selected. Uh, but, you know, I'm a little worried uh, that I might get like stuck in a jury for a week. But I want half of me wants to do my civil service. We'll see. Wish me luck. Um, tell me, what's going on uh, in the uh, teacher's lounge this week? Well, the news, the news, the news is always full of information right now mm-hmm. in regard to the impeachment right. brought upon by the Democrats. But there's an article out there right now that, you know, teachers are in an awkward position in regard to trying to discuss the current political climate yes. and what's in the news. I mean, you have to be very careful so that you are not inserting your own biased opinion. I think all impeachments um, would feel partisan, you know, I guess. I mean, I, I was in high school during the Clinton impeachment, um, or I was coming out of high school, I guess, at that time. But um, so I can see it, how it's a difficult topic to discuss. But right now it seems extra divisive. Oh, it's extra. It's it's extra. All right. Any form of communication regarding the current political climate. And let me tiptoe around the current president. Mm-hmm. It has such a strong negative connotation, and it is divisive. My concern is we're looking at can teachers have healthy discourse in their classrooms about what's going on in America, but can they even have those healthy conversations with a colleague? That's a good question. Yeah, you're right. So it's one thing to teach the students, but how do you even have that discussion in the teacher's lounge, so to speak? And in fact, let's let's be honest. We are having this discussion right now. I certainly don't want to isolate or alienate anyone listening to us. Um, so I, I try not to inject my opinion in all of this. But I think we can all agree that when it comes to impeachment, we can at least look at the history, right? That's a safe Very zone. Very true. We need to look at the facts and look at what's being presented that caused the inquiry. But if you go back and look Um, In the past, the issues that were brought forth, first of all, they already happened. And so your opinion actually doesn't matter because it's settled. When I say history, though, I mean like 
All right. Well, let's look at the last two years. No, I mean, let's look at past impeachments. Let's look okay. at Andrew Johnson, I think, or Richard Nixon yes. or, or Bill Clinton. Like, let's let's talk about the what ifs, like what happened here? What happened here? What did Nixon? I guess he wasn't actually impeached. You know, it was he resigned because he thought he was going about to be impeached. Or he was that he would was be, to be the best approach to transition into the current impeachment discussion. Yeah. Um, but but if a student brings it up... Yeah, it's going to be so you know, hard. You can't avoid it. First of all, you want students to think deeply and to have opinions and to be able to communicate it and not only communicate it, be able to write about it. And if they bring it up, you don't want to just shut it down. Right. I think you would have to be very clever about your response to kind of bring it down for a moment, process it. A teacher may or may not consider talking to their administrator about it. Some may not talk to their administrator about it at all because they have an opinion and they would love to hear their students debate it, especially on the high school level. They're almost old enough to vote. They know how their families or their parents feel, what their political stances are, and they have an opinion. Um, but I think you have to be very careful because you have to be skilled at leading a debate and or discussion and staying completely neutral, but also teaching about respect of others' opinions and how the opinion should be communicated. A few things. We did an episode um, 120 not too long ago where we had a uh, media specialist on, and she talked about, you know, talking about the word fake news and how do you have that topic where right. the president's, you know, he coined the term. The term. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so um, if you want to get some tips on that, go listen to episode 120. It was a great discussion. Um, and we've even done some other episodes with some experts just on like how to have these politically heated topics. So there, there's advice out there, and I'll continue to look for people who have suggestions. But um, I know you actually mentioned that you taught science at one point. I did. Um, biology specifically, as well as middle school science. And w I always had to carefully tiptoe around the discussion of evolution. I am a Christian. I understand what the Bible says, what the principles are. But at the same time, as a teacher, it's important to teach all theories and, you know, every aspect. And then you let students make the decision for themselves. Um, and it was always a, a very touchy topic. And I always made it a point to inform parents of the theme that was coming. I grew up in Northern Virginia where like creationism, like it was never discussed and you move down South here and, I, and it's the totally Bible different. belt. It's, it's different. Um, and so I just wanted to point that out, like to somebody listening, like you may live in an area where evolution isn't a a wedge issue. No. Um, but around here, it, it is somewhat. It's tough for teachers to, to dive into that because they know that a parent is going to be upset if there's not at least a, a fair balance of, like you said, all viewpoints. And it was difficult for me, again, not being a Southerner. Um, I learned every aspect of it in school, studying science. Obviously, I was greatly interested in science to major in it. Um, and then to come into the South and be a science teacher, I realized how sensitive of a subject did you ever hear back from a parent? I actually did not. Okay. Um, I think they trusted me to deliver the information appropriately, to let students form their, their own thoughts. And at the same time, part of my activities required them to have discussions at home. 
do you, with their families. As a principal, do you have teachers come to you for like curriculum advice about this type of stuff? Like, what? How do I teach this topic? Or is that that not really? Ha, no, I think generally teachers when we when we are planning together in our professional learning communities is a lot more about how to unpack a standard. How do you ensure a child is able to master that skill? I'm struggling with this, and we talk about different instructional strategies. But um, leading a kindergarten through eighth grade school, I don't have that issue. That's right. Um, yeah. Around biology and evolution. And um, not having U.S. history on my campus, I I don't see a whole lot of the political conversations. However, we are teaching um, social studies to seventh grade students and then, of course, Mississippi studies and world geography to eighth grade students. And they're earning a high school credit for that. Um, The topic has not come up on my campus. But if it did, um, I think we would need to just really unpeel that, look at a, a master plan at how we would lead that discussion, but not only that, communicate with our director of curriculum at our district office level so that everyone could be informed. I think that it's important for high school students to understand politics and understand the parties, to understand how decisions are made, how law is you know, put into effect. And so having the conversation, I think, is really important. We're hoping that they go off to you know, four-year colleges, two-year colleges, and further their education. If we try to keep everything from them, we're doing them a disservice. So I think that it, healthy conversation is very important. But if a teacher has not been effectively trained on how to keep their personal opinions mm-hmm. out, or if they have a extremely strong personality and strong opinion for one side politically or another, um, I, I think that I would stay away from it. That's that's good advice. I think, you know, you can talk about the process, about what we're mm-hmm. about to see, mm-hmm. and still get a pretty far ways. I think, you know, we're about to see what's probably going to be the House impeaching the president. But what does that mean? He's what thinking, does that mean? You know, and and, and, and the, will we really have evidence to support it? Um, and, and what will that look like? And what will be considered fake news? Or not. Well, and then what are the steps that the Senate may or may not take? And and I think so at least when that stuff's happening in real time, these mm-hmm. students will, will already understand what to expect and maybe even be able to inform their parents in some cases. So I want to encourage all of the administrators out there that's listening to us right now. Um, you might need to consider this and have a staff conversation about it to see if this mm-hmm. is an issue. It may have already, you know, popped up on your campus and then figure out what next steps need to be taken, especially with the presidential election coming next year. You always want to have a mock election, teach students about the electoral process, but this is going to be a very heated race in the coming months. And so you need yeah. to be prepared. Uh, you have a high schooler. I do. And um, has he taken the ACT yet? He has. Yeah. He um, took it as a freshman. Okay. He scored a 19. Oh, that's good. Yeah. It's a good start. I'm looking for much higher. Okay. <laughs> right. And I think, I think there's another one coming up in a matter of weeks. Yeah. Uh, we're planning to take it again in the spring. We wanted to make sure that we uh, got English 2 out of the way and, of course, Algebra 2. So the ACT has just announced, and this was just days ago, that um, they're going to change some rules. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of parents will like these changes. So they're going to have a new option that will allow students to take the test, which the, only the students that are taking it in the, quote, national testing centers on Saturdays. Yes. Um, and that they will be able to retake just a portion of the exam and not necessarily the whole exam. And oh, then that's use, great. So see? so if you struggle with math, but or you have or- an excellent, you know, reading comprehension ability. Mm-hmm. So that that helps you on the science and the, the the English portion of the exam and you just need to shore up on your math skills. That's a lot less anxiety for young people. If I just took the ACT and I 
you know, had this one section I didn't do well on the fact that I would have to go and sit through that long time period again to redo what, like I almost wouldn't try hard on the other stuff. So like, yeah, just let me take the part that makes, counts. Makes a lot of sense because the amount of stress on them as it is to have to retake the entire long test. Right. Um, Sometimes I think you see students do worse in the sections they scored well on trying to focus on the sections they didn't do well on. The, the other thing I think that parents and kids will like is they're going to allow um, what's called a super score, where you basically, if you do take it multiple times, you can combine your score and send that score to schools. It says, and let me phrase What took them so long? Right. And, and apparently these universities, in some cases, were already doing that. Um, but now the actual company is going to allow them to put the super score together so students can, quote, put their best foot forward when applying for college and for scholarships. That's great. So I think that's all good. Um, this article is interesting. You know, it, it makes it sound like they're doing it for the kids. But then it says this also might be a business decision. And so to give you a little background on that, uh, as many of you know, there's an ACT and, of course, an SAT. And the SAT is owned by the College Board, which I didn't know. And um, for years, I think the ACT had been in the lead in terms of, like, more people were taking the ACT than the SAT. I think it also mattered geographically. It, no it, one it talked about way. the ACT in Southern California, where I'm from. Right. I took the SAT I on did the too. East Coast. And, um, so, and then there was that conversion score and so forth that they would allow you to do. Um, but in the past few years, apparently the SAT has surpassed the ACT in terms of numbers. It says um, 2.1 million text test takers graduating in the class of 2018 for the SAT, and the ACT had 1.9 million. Wow. So, so we, this might be somewhat of a strategy to encourage people to say, come take our test. Not that it's easier, but it, you know, it has Better some opportunity to improve. Right, exactly. And, and I think... Um, you know, there's also some things in here about how more and more testing centers, this isn't at all of them, but they're going to an electronic version, not just the old handwritten version. Mm -hmm. So um, that's going to be something as well. Well, that's so. more in line with how we're giving our state assessments. Exactly. They're digital, so right. why not? The um, thing for me, the SAT, there was no, what was it? No science, right? It was just English I don't remember and math. it being science, yeah, but I, it was very long. It was. and But then the ACT does have science in there, if I, I remember I felt like correctly. I was at this high school that we where we had to take our exam the entire day on a Saturday. Right. So anyhow, those changes aren't in effect yet, but keep an eye out for them if you've got a kid coming through or you're a teacher in high school. And I will be sure to that share that. That's awesome. That stuff's coming down the uh, pipeline. Are you ready for the bright idea? I am ready. Let it roll. Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment is teaching his students how to analyze text with computers. Peter Nilsson is an English teacher, but he also has submerged himself into the digital humanities, and he's now showing his class how they can use code to find trends or changes in news coverage, speeches, and even rap lyrics. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. It's good to be here. First, let's uh, make sure I myself, as well as our listening audience, understands exactly what you're doing here, because it is a little bit complex, but I'm going to try to explain it how I interpret it, and then you tell me where I'm wrong. All right. From, from what I understand, I think you are basically taking large amounts of text. So let's say if it's news coverage, and you're analyzing that, or the student is analyzing that, and seeing if there's some sort of change maybe in the way things are covered? Would that be an example? Sure. Yeah, th that's a specific case. The The general idea is that 
we can read text in multiple ways, and we're used to reading text to close reading text, to looking at the individual meaning of individual words and trying to pull meaning from that as we build words together into sentences. But what we've also come to understand is that with more powerful computational tools, we can start to look at texts in the aggregate and start to say across these thousands or tens of thousands of words or more, what can we, what meaning can we draw? How can we look at this text at large and use more sophisticated tools to, to read the text from a distance? Where did you even come up with this idea? There are two or three stages to coming up with this idea. The first was back when I was in college in the late 90s. These were the early days of the internet. And I remember being assigned an essay by one of my English professors uh, about Heart of Darkness. And I thought to myself, I wonder if I can find every instance of the of the word darkness within the text. And I had read it very carefully, of course, and I could remember several key moments. But I felt like if I could do some kind of a find-in text, then I would be able to find it more easily. Sure enough, in these early days of the internet, some of these public domain texts were online. And I was able to find Heart of Darkness online in the web browser, the full text at the University of Virginia, like e-library, I forget exactly what it was called. Um, and so I, I opened up the full text of Heart of Darkness in a web browser. I typed command F to do find and page and I put in the word darkness and right in front of me there one at a time I could find every instance of the word darkness. And that's a great example of how a digital tool can be used to facilitate or enhance our analysis of a text. Of course, as a close reader, which is the skill of reading literature, I could then look at every instance of the word darkness and find and draw meaning from it. That was, that's one example of how this, uh, how this idea started. A second example is or came from when I uh, was leading a, a, a group, a committee at, at my school that was about the varying degrees of preparation of students at our school. And we wanted to, to see if we could better understand how we could support students coming from all different skill levels and backgrounds. And there were like content skills and there were content gaps rather that we saw uh, between st students as they arrived. There were skills gaps between students as they arrived. But we had a hypothesis that there were character gaps uh, and how students arrive. Or rather, we had a hypothesis that certain character traits that different students had would help them close the gaps that they had in their preparation for high school as they, as they came to our school. And that's great to have that hypothesis that certain character traits will help students succeed more, but it doesn't help us if we don't know what those character traits are. Mm -hmm. What's challenging about character is that it's qualitative, not quantitative. Right. We don't have assessments for it. And so we wanted to understand how we could assess what character traits, how it could qualitatively assess what character traits uh, characterize those students who excel and what character traits we encourage in students who struggle. Um, and we realized that teachers at our school write 150 to 200 word comments about each of our students at the end of every class, at the end of every term. Mm -hmm. So at the end of every is term. That, is that basically so they can pass on to the next teacher? Yeah, or reflect back to the parents or provide some kind of feedback to the student and the parents and the future teachers about the student's progress. And if we have 650 students at our school and they're each receiving 150 to 200 words of feedback about um, from each of their teachers for all five of their classes in the fall, three terms per year, 15 classes, we realize that our teachers here at Deerfield write 1.6 to 1.7 million words per year about our students. Wow. And we realize we have this in a database going back eight years, 14 million words our teachers write about students um, or had written about students in our databases. And so we said, well, this is an extraordinary qualitative description of student performance. 
And so if we can take the comments that we write encouraging our, our bottom 16% of students, the students who struggle, we can find out what are the character traits, uh, what are the words, what are the character traits that appear to a statistically significant degree more often in those comments of students who struggle. And that will help us understand the character traits that we encourage in students who struggle. And if we think about the students who excel and we section off those uh those the comments for those students mm -hmm. then we can say what are the character traits we reflect in students who excel so, so i'm um, curious what, what was the conclusion <laughs> that's always the exciting part right, right? Uh, so yeah so what we found actually was that and but before i tell you what it is you know to keep it a little bit further mm -hmm. this is an example of a of a text mining analysis of a big data analysis. You have this massive body of text, 14 million words. You can't read all those words, but maybe we can use computational tools to sift out the meaning or to sift out relevant pieces of information that we can then explore further. And so what we found through this approach was that the character traits that teachers referred to or described to a statistically significantly greater degree in the students who struggle uh, were character traits that had to do with first consistency. Are students performing in a consistent manner? Hmm. Second, the idea of sufficiency. Are students doing more than just the bare minimum or are they doing the bare minimum? We see the word appear, we see the word more appear more often in the comments of students who struggle than in those, uh, than in those who excel. Uh, and so, so consistency is one area, one character trait. Sufficiency, uh, a minimum level of productivity is another area. And then the third one, uh, was focus. We see words having to do with attention and focus appear more often in those, in the comments of students who struggle. So we began to think about those three different traits, uh, foundational consistency, sufficiency, and focus as foundational to the way we want, uh, as foundational to success mm -hmm, right. at, at Deerfield. And then the comments, the, the, the rather the character traits that we saw in students who excel or that our teachers reflected in their comments about students who excel are familiar terms. We see a more frequent use of the word curiosity in students who excel. We see a more frequent use of the word creativity uh, in the comments rather of students who, who excel. Uh, and also we see words having to do with grit, words like discipline, words like dedication. Uh, those kinds of words appear uh, in, in more often in the comments of students who excel. And so that was really fascinating. The foundational character traits we began to see were consistency, sufficiency, and focus. And the, the character traits that led to excellence we began to see as curiosity, creativity, and grit. That is extremely fascinating. And I imagine that you, the data set that you looked at, I mean, is useful to, to any school in the country, really. I imagine it's pretty consistent just about wherever you look with what your conclusion was. Mm -hmm. You were talking about using control F at the beginning. This was mm -hmm. a much more complex system, I imagine, to be able to pull all this data, right? Yeah. So the way that I think about that is what we were doing with Heart of Darkness was not was, was very easy, but not very powerful. And what we did with this data set was really powerful, but not very easy. Um, and so what led to the creation of this class was about three years ago, it was 2015 or 2016, uh, I was attending South by Southwest EDU, and I was at a talk uh, listening to Stephen Wolfram present about uh, Wolfram language, which is the programming language that undergirds Mathematica, right. uh, which is math software for, for math classes, and uh, Wolfram Alpha, which is the kind of natural language processing slash structured knowledge engine that undergirds Siri and a number of other tools. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was listening to his talk, and in his talk there, he was modeling 
some of the new functionality that Wolfram language uh, could do. Uh, and he was showing uh, ways in which Wolfram language had been uh, enhanced or expanded to include commands for taking computational approaches to text and for doing word counts, for doing word clouds, for um, parsing sentences, for assessing the 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 mood uh, of sentences for deconstructing words into their phonetic forms into their uh, relative meanings. Uh, it, it it was really fascinating. And what was critical about watching that was it was very clear as I was watching it that it was not only powerful but also easy. It was taking uh, the computational power of Mathematica and applying it to structured knowledge and to text in a language that was operating in what you would say in the in the programming space as at a very high level which means the commands were very simple if you want to make a word cloud you type in word cloud mm -hmm. and then the name of the text you want to make a word cloud out of if you want to count all the words in a in a body of text you do uh, word count if you want to count how many times every single word appears in the text do word counts. You know, they're very simple, one word, intuitive sounding commands. The syntax is minimal. And I listened to that and I saw that and I said, wow, that's easy. That's something that 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 high school students could do. Um, and so I went and spoke with Stephen Wolfram after the talk. And that's the great thing about going to conferences where people like Stephen Wolfram are presenting is you can just walk right up to them afterwards right, right. And, and ask them questions. Uh, and I interesting, interestingly, I told him about the the text mining analysis about character traits that I just mentioned. Right. And he was fascinated by that. And we continued that conversation down at the expo at South by Southwest. And um, I started to learn to use Wolfram language just, you know, at the conference. Um, and that was the beginning of it. Uh, I brought that knowledge back to my school and I, and I said, this would make a great course. So can you describe some of the projects that the students were working on specifically or something that stands out in your mind? Sure, yeah. There were five projects over the course of the term. And the first was a three-day project that uses, uses a tool that's online called Google Ngram Viewer, which shows you the popularity of individual words over time. It, it shows you a graph of word usage. And that's a really great, easy-to-use tool that helps kids begin to think quantitatively or computationally about words. You can see, for example, what the um, predominance is or what the, what the frequency of, of use of the word frisbee is versus lacrosse or soccer. You can see, um, you can search different names and see how those names have ebbed and flowed over time. And so it, it, the first project began just encouraging students to ask questions, to explore the tool, to play with it a little bit, to see what kind of information they could get out of it, and then to start to be a little more uh, intentional about testing words against each other and then using some of the some of the more refined tools that they can use uh, with Google Ngram Viewer. Uh, so it started with that. And that was just an introduction to thinking computationally uh, about text. Then we introduced them to Wolfram language. Uh, and we, we introduced them to Wolfram language by inviting them to analyze their own writing using some quantitative, uh, quantitative approaches. Mm -hmm. we, we had them uh, gather up all the writing that they had produced in high school that they still had saved uh, and put it into one document. And then we modeled for them some of the basic analyses that you can do in Wolfram language and had them essentially copy the code that we were doing, but using it on a different data set. 
And our approach in doing this was to use something like an immersion approach to computer science language or to programming languages, as opposed to a, a more theoretical approach to computer science languages. Um, but so, so what we did is we had them do some, some analyses of their own writing and we had them compare their own writing to works of great literature by looking at sentence length, by looking at the the breadth of their vocabulary, by looking at um, the length of syllables in the words that they used, by looking at uh, the length of lengths of paragraphs. And it was fascinating because the, first of all, it's extraordinarily relevant. They're excited by it because they see measures of their own writing. Right. Second of all, they compare their own writing to writing of great writers. And it's not what you would think. It's not like you would think that Shakespeare's sentences are all very long. It turns out they're not. Uh, and students are surprised sometimes that their sentences are longer than great writers. And they recognize that it isn't all about length. It's also about how you use the individual words. It's also about the vocabulary that, that they use and comparing, they start to see whether they have long paragraphs or short paragraphs and which writers have long paragraphs and short paragraphs. And of course, they're continuing to share their work in, in small presentations to each other. And then after the, those foundational projects, we really open it up in the final two projects, which are two, two to three week long independent projects where after we have introduced them to this way of thinking, given them a little bit of familiarity with the tool, they then can start to ask questions about topics that are of interest to them. And this gets back to your original question about how kids use it. This is when kids start to say, well, I'm interested in rap music. And we say, okay, well, what do you want to know about rap music? How might you use this? And they might say, well, I want to know who the best rap artist is. Hmm. And we can say, well, that's a great question, but how can we assess that with uh, w from a computational approach? And they might say, oh, well, what about rhyme? Can we look at how they use rhyme? And we can say, yes, actually, because in the programming language, which again is powerful and easy, you can break down, you can transfer, translate each word into the phonemes of the word. And once you can translate into the phonemes, which is the, the individual sounds of each word, of each, uh, of each sound or syllable in the word, then you can start to look quantitatively at the phonemes. Does does this particular vowel sound appear in close proximity to itself multiple times? Does this particular consonant appear with greater frequency? The frequency of the phoneme represents rhyme. The density of the appearances of the phoneme represents like internal rhyme or close rhyme. Um, so from that, the students started to say, well, then maybe we can assess who the best rap artist is by who has the greatest use or the densest use of rhyme in their verses. The student then compared Kendrick Lamar to Eminem to one other artist whose name I forget. I mean, I think it was Common, maybe, I don't remember, mm -hmm. um, to see who had the greatest use of internal rhyme. Another student said, well, I want to look at rap, but I want to look at rap over time and see how it's changed over time. So this student found when Billboard first started putting rap and hip hop on the on the top on the billboard charts and found that that was 1989 and then found every rap song that was listed in the top 10 on these charts um uh, on the hip hop charts and then found uh, online the lyrics for every single song every single rap song that was in the top 10 billboard chart for rap or hip hop and then collected all those songs into individual files and then started to say, well, let's chunk these into 1990 to 1995, 95 to 2000, 2000 to 2005, right. 2005 to 2010. And started to say, yeah, what are the most frequent words that appear in each half decade? What are the, uh, 
how what are what are the relative lengths of the songs? When are rap artists more ver- verbose, and when are they when are they more spare? When is the writing more laden with expletives, and when is it cleaner? Um, and and that was really interesting. Um, other students, instead of looking at um, <clears throat> music, other students looked at things like representations of sports teams in their home news hometown newspaper versus in their rival city newspaper. <laughs> so they would look at after the Patriots won the Super Bowl, they'd pull the articles from the local Boston and New England newspapers and they'd pull the articles from the New York newspapers and or from, you know, newspapers in California and say what are the words that appear most frequently in these, how much do they talk about the star players? How much do they talk about the defense or the offense? Uh, and compared that across those. And uh, other students looked at, um, one student, a pair of students looked at Harvey Weinstein as represented in, in the New York Times and pulled every article that from the Times topic, Harvey Weinstein in the New York Times, which was many, many articles, and then looked at how words appeared after the Me Too movement arrived and before the Me Too movement arrived to see how coverage uh, of Harvey Weinstein changed during that time. So yeah. when, when when these students are are diving into things that they like, like rap or sports or or whatever it may be, this mm-hmm. must blow their mind what they're doing. Like what's the reaction you get from them? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. <clears throat> uh it it's great. Um part of the way that we designed the class was so that they would be able to pursue these topics of interest and enable them to see these topics of interest from a new perspective. And it does kind of blow their minds a little bit. They, they start to realize that they're creating knowledge and especially in such a young field, the field is called the digital humanities and the digital humanities is just establishing itself. It's been around in various forms actually for hundreds of years, but as a really powerful contemporary computational tool, that's, I'd put it in the decades. Um, and since it's such a young field, they realize that they're creating knowledge and uh, that is cutting edge, that we're seeing this in the 2016 elections. There are articles in the New York Times and in the Wall Street Journal about word frequency usage in the speeches of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Uh, and they realize that they're doing the same thing on topics of, of their own interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, th- that was a, a big part of how we wanted to design the class. And some of it is not, not not only contemporary. Some students are saying, I want to look at inauguration speeches uh, across the history of the United States and farewell addresses from presidents across the history of the United States and see what words appear consistently across all of them and then what words are unique to individual presidents. And, and distant reading is really the term that you, that you put on all of this, right? Yeah, distant reading is a term that we we take from a from a book of of literary criticism called Distant Reading, by a, by a former Stanford professor named Franco Moretti, who was not the first person to think in this way, but he kind of crystallized or put a name on uh, an approach to text that had been emerging uh, over over a period of time. Essentially, what what Moretti uh, argues is that when we study literature, when we study the novel, for example. We look at maybe the, you know, 200 novels are considered the great novels and are the ones that people study in their English classes. Um, but if we want to talk about the novel, we need to recognize that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of novels that have been written. And by looking at only a very small subset of what those novels are, we're really only looking at the exception and not the rule. And if we are to really understand the novel, we need to be inclusive of all those hundreds of thousands or millions of novels that have been written. Only in doing that can we really understand 
he would say, more rationally, what the novel is and how the novel works. Of course, that's a very difficult, it's basically an impossible thing to do because it's too much to read in a lifetime. But if we start to think about these distant approaches where we're looking at words and we're looking at texts from a distance through graphs, through maps, through knowledge trees, through computational or quantitative approaches, then we can start to derive different kinds of meaning, which is not the same as the meaning that we derive from reading closely. The way I think about that is that if we really want to understand the human experience, we want to look closely at a novel. We want to understand the characters or, or closely at history. If we want to really understand the human experience, we want to look closely at novels or closely at history to understand who's operating in a situation. What decisions are they making? What are the factors influencing them? What does it feel to be in that moment? That's how we can really understand the human experience. But if we want to look at the trends or patterns uh, that start to emerge across different experiences, then we want to think about looking from a distant approach. Then we want to start seeing, looking at large masses of texts uh, and aggregating knowledge across them. In, in a real life sense, I mean, in my mind, I can already think of some jobs that this skill set could be useful in, and one's media or or constitutional law. You could analyze Supreme Court opinions and and look for trends there, or maybe frequency of words used. I mean, what what comes to mind for you? How, where can you see this skill set applied in the real world? It's a good question. Our goal in the course is to help students understand how computation can inform their understanding of text and how they can use this to draw meaning from large bodies of text. Um, that is applicable across almost any discipline. And we, we live in a world that generates lots of data. Some of it is quantitative. That's what we generally think of when we think of data. We think of numbers, but that generates lots of qualitative data as well through the prose that is written, the words that are written uh, in any uh, in any environment. And our goal is really to say, in this world filled with data like this, filled with words, so filled with words, here is a tool that you can use to apply to almost any any field. For example. We're in an English class. We're looking at literature. This is, you know, the, the class that you probably think of as being the farthest removed from data. And yet still you can use this tool in this world. As our world grows more digital, here is, um, here is something that, that you can use to, to really explore and experiment. The content that we're talking about using software, uh, applying that computational approach to text, that is really just a medium to get to some really universal skills. Question formulation, problem decomposition, interpretation of evidence and argumentation, and then being metacognitive, reflecting on their work. And those skills are really serving the purpose of our ultimate goals, which are to develop three character traits in students. We want them to practice play, like unstructured play for learning. We want to give them a powerful tool and say, play with it. See what you come up with. We also want them to practice, once they've done that, we want them to practice disciplined experimentation. Can they take something that they've played with, that they've found something compelling with, and then can they be disciplined about how they use that tool? And then we want them to practice persistence. 
which is that trait consistency um, that that carries through. If somebody's listening to this and they say, you know what, I want to try this in my class, maybe not a whole course, but, you know, do an example of this. Where should they start? If somebody's interested in this and experimenting with it, I would encourage them to go to our website, distantreading.org. There they can find uh, a discussion of the projects that we shared in our class, uh, a, a more thorough description of the character, skill, and content objectives of our course. So you can also find there some highlights from student work. And if the description of the code and the, and the programming still sounds a little intimidating, there's uh, even a video there of some live coding that I did uh, at a conference presentation so a teacher could see exactly what it looks like to see if if it uh, to see if it's intimidating or not. I don't think it will be once you see it, uh, once it's demystified. Any other places you like to uh, have people keep up with you? Uh, are you on social media or anything like that? Oh, great. Uh, yes. Um, I am on social media, uh, Twitter, at P. Nelson, but the place that I would really point people to is educatorsnotebook.com. That's uh, a newsletter that I put out every week that collects education and learning-related news from around the web, and I'm always posting updates about digital humanities stuff there, but I'm also posting news articles that I encounter about character, about curriculum, about STEM, about humanities, about uh, cognitive science, about adolescence, uh, you name it. just try to keep up with news that's there, and, and I'll, I'll be sharing information there as well. Peter, you really are doing some next-level work with the students here, um, and I just have to applaud you for that. So uh, keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Well, Peter, are you ready for our pop quiz? <laughs> as ready as I'll ever be, I guess. All right. Uh, first question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? It should be communication, okay. which I would call language arts. All right. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I don't believe we're intentional, in most cases, about teaching empathy, which is essential in an increasingly isolated and fractured world. What does every child deserve? Opportunity. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Too many stakeholders asking for too many different things. What's the best gift to give an educator? Time. Which teacher changed your life? I will choose two or three teachers who told me that my who told me in different ways that my work wasn't acceptable and that I needed to do better in order to do well in their classes. And and you took that in a good way, I guess? Yeah, I took that as well. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I took that as a good way, in a good way. Sometimes I took that in a good way, in that, uh, well, l- 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 <laughs> I, you took it as a it. challenge, I should say. Yes, I took it as a challenge. In most cases, actually, now that I think back about that, I was frustrated in the class, and I was going to prove it to myself or to the teacher that what I wanted to do or that what I believed in could be excellent. Uh, and uh, <laughs> sometimes it was kind of thumbing it to the teacher. Uh, and I can't say that I that I encourage that in other people. But I will say that it was a teacher telling me, you know, it was a teacher giving me a bad grade or a teacher saying that something that I believed strongly in was wrong um, that led me to dig into that and to research, understand actually what good hard work meant. Um, and when the teacher then rewarded that good hard work, I realized, oh, that's the good hard work that the teacher was asking for all along. And last question, pen or pencil? I carry pens everywhere. 
I'm a, you know, I'm a teacher. I always have a pen in my pocket. All right. Peter Nilsson, again, we appreciate your time <laughs> and uh, best of luck to you with all you're doing over there at Deerfield Academy. Thanks so much, Nick. I really appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>